for Ananth and Isaiah as they labor to, uh, to love the poor and to extend your kingdom and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Would you please prepare our team? Uh, would you please indeed break their hearts and uh, meet them in that place? Uh, would they learn in new ways what it means that blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God? Would you uh, keep them uh, safe as you watch over them? Would you um, permit them to encourage uh, Smriti and Isaiah and Anant? And would you permit uh, those same people to encourage us that it might result in all of our faith being encouraged uh, for drawing near to you and understanding our mystical union with Christ at a deeper level? Father, you are God who does great and brilliant things, so often in the least expected places. So as these, our uh, brothers and sisters, go to meet our brothers and sisters on the other side of the world, we ask in humility that you would do something great and unexpected, that we might give you all the more glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, Bless, for to this you have to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who reviled your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The word of the Lord. The Apostle Peter has told us that we are both elect and exile, chosen by God and separate now out of the world to be God's people, waiting ultimately for his redemption, but being called to participate in his kingdom agenda, his kingdom plan in the meantime as we wait in this in-between times. Peter says that part of that calling then to live it out faithfully is to trace the example of Jesus' life. As we look to Christ, His sacrifice, His suffering, and understand that through that, God worked great change and ultimately resurrection. So we, in our sacrifice and suffering, 
participate and tell that story to the world. And today we see that Peter says that involves essentially a choice, that there are two roads to take, there are two paths. And uh, you see it identified in the psalm that he quotes, Psalm 34, beginning in verse 10. And in verse 12, he says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayer. And those are the righteous in this passage are those who do good, even when they suffer for it. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that, of course, is those who are committed to evil, but also those who aren't willing to be faithful by being willing to suffer even in the midst of doing good. Now, this isn't our inclination, right? Very often we exist in a, in a culture that values seeking our own justice. We tell many stories in which if we're provoked or if someone has cost us something or has wounded us, uh, we might forgive something slight, right? But when we are really injured, we have a tendency, a desire within us to reach out and seek our own justice, to reconcile that wrong. Uh, to require a pound of flesh from the one that we feel who has taken it from us. But Peter seems to be describing something very different here, a different way of living. It's a way of living that is captured by the life of Virginia uh, Prodan. Virginia was a woman who grew up in uh, communist Romania, which was a very anti-religious place, and that was okay for Virginia growing up. She wasn't particularly Christian. She might make church on Easter and Christmas, but really nothing other than that. She was always uh, frustrated growing up in Romania. She felt like uh, her country wasn't allowed to pursue truth in any fashion. And of course, under Nikolai, uh, uh, I have a terrible time pronouncing his, yes, somebody just said Ceausescu, right? Under his regime, uh, Christianity was fiercely persecuted. Uh, if you were practicing the faith, you could be taken and beaten and uh, held under house arrest, and sometimes you would just disappear, right? Because Christianity and religion in general was thought to be a threat to the sound governance of the state. Well, Virginia ultimately pursued law and started to pr practice law, which to her was a great disappointment because she felt like she spent all of her time rubber stamping government documents and playing by the rules why everyone spoke in whispers against the government, but always afraid because the government employed um, many spies. And if you went to church, you didn't know if the person sitting on your right or left might be listening and might ultimately turn you into uh, the communist authorities. But eventually she came into contact with a client who troubled her, and the reason that she was troubled by the client was the optimism, the joy that he exhibited in day-to-day -day life. And as she was meeting with him, she recounts uh, the, that meeting and the experience of him in this way. One evening, a client came in to discuss some paperwork related to a property settlement. We had been meeting for months now, and frankly, I was exhausted. But this particular client never seemed to get discouraged. He always smiled, and he had a sense of contentment, unlike anything I had ever seen. It was as though he were somehow oblivious to all of the misery that surrounded him. He radiated joy and peace, and for some reason it troubled me. This individual, because of the joy that he has, right? Remember, you're talking about communist Romania. No one has joy in communist Romania. But for the joy that he has, it's perplexing to Virginia. She contemplates it. She's troubled by it over time, and eventually says, What is it with you? Why do you have this outlook on life? Why do you exhibit such joy in the midst of such frustration? 
And uh, the individual ultimately invites her to church, and she goes. And Virginia hears John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Virginia had never considered that truth would be a person and that truth would be something that's presented by God. But in a country that was very afraid of truth and very w- would not allow truth to be freely spoken, this resonated deeply with her. And she begins to come to the point of understanding. And her friend says, do you understand what you're hearing? And Virginia writes, I did. Without realizing it, I was beaming back at him. For the first time in my life, everything made sense. I had spent years searching for the truth, but I had been looking in the wrong places. Law school, the government, the justice system. I suddenly realized that truth was something that came not from law books, but from God himself, the creator of the universe, my creator, the source of all life, peace, and happiness. And from that point forward, Virginia, who converts now, no longer practices law on behalf of the government, but she becomes a defender of those who are smuggling Bibles. She becomes a defender of Christians who have been arrested in communist Romania and uh, seeks to protect them and offer them uh, legal aid. For this, she immediately comes under the scrutiny of the Romanian government and ultimately will be put under house arrest. She and her child will be kidnapped. She'll be beaten. She'll be pushed into moving traffic. Right? Endless series of threats for participating in uh, advocating Christianity and protecting those who have come under uh, charges related to it. And she continues on. She doesn't hide. She doesn't withdraw. She doesn't protect her faith. But she continues to participate even though she's being uh, persecuted and suffering for righteousness' sake. And this is the the exact uh, question and dilemma that Peter is taking up with the young church in Asia. Persecution is on the rise. It would be much easier to say, we're going to practice our faith more privately. We're not necessarily going to be so overt about it. And Peter said that would be the worst thing. Uh, and it is, this is part of God's story, that you would actually identify with Jesus in your suffering for articulating his story. And yes, you will suffer for doing good, but this is part of God's plan, and he intends to work great things through it. Well, I think that challenges us sometimes in terms of why necessarily would we really want to buy into that. And why does Peter hold out that there's something for the early church in suffering for righteousness' sake? Anyone can suffer for having done evil. But why would we continue to do good even in the midst of suffering for doing good? Notice Peter's concern here, how how much time and attention he's giving to it. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. He then quotes Psalm 34 and exhorts the people to turn away from evil and to do good, even in the midst of suffering. And in 3.14, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And this is what Peter is telling the church, that yes, being a Christian and following Jesus is hard, but if you continue in faithfulness, you will be blessed. And the eyes of God are on the righteous. Your prayers will be heard This is something that will actually be good for you. But man, when we are hurt, when we are persecuted, when we suffer in some way, it is not our national identity or really our story to simply suffer in a way that we think, um, rather than to claim rights and privileges that we think have been marginalized. We can think of many stories culturally 
right? Any Denzel Washington movie of the last 10 years, virtually, I can think of one exception, right? Most Westerns, right? Any superhero movie, right? The basic story that you see over and over again, that there's someone with power, but someone, they, they seek to walk quietly and humbly. But someone pokes the bear, right? And eventually, eventually the, her- the heroine initially is always like, oh, it's okay, you can abuse me. But the, the oppressor or the bad guy will eventually go farther and push the agenda. And then uh, the heroine, either he or she, will decide that they have to act, right? And then they unleash their power or their skill or their might to overcome the situation. The oppressor is defeated and those who are being oppressed are liberated. And we, we love this story. It's a great story. Um, it's something that we gravitate to and we like to tell for ourselves, but it's not really the story that, uh, that Peter is telling. Right? Peter's telling a story in which you would suffer, you might be slandered, you might be, someone might exercise contempt towards you, you might be mocked, and as a result of that, Peter says, your tendency will be to exact what you feel like you have suffered to revile for being reviled, and to do evil for having received evil. But Peter says, no, your calling is to be something completely different, and that is to actually do good, to be a blessing to your enemies, to pray for those who would curse you. It's a very different role compared to the stories that we so often celebrate. Well, what does this really mean for us? We don't exactly live in a place where we're necessarily being persecuted, like the early church in Asia was. In fact, you live in what some people would call the buckle of the Bible belt, and you live in a place where putting a Christian fish on your business card might actually help your business rather than hurt it. You live in a place that is very different culturally than the church we're talking about in Asia Minor. But I think there's still things, application to be made for a number of reasons. First of all, that your perse- our persecution is increasing. Right? If we have not already arrived, we are arriving very soon at a day in which to follow Jesus, to identify as his disciple, will mean that you better be comfortable with the term bigot because that is what you're going to be called for worshiping him. You will be proclaimed a hater for some of the positions that you take. And this is, we will be increasingly marginalized on the side of society, thought of as irrelevant, and people will scratch their heads thinking that we're harming our kids by raising them in the faith. I would imagine that most of you have already experienced that to some degree, whether in your family or from friends at large. So, you know, Peter is speaking into something that we're increasingly experiencing. But you also experience it to some extent for another reason, that if you try to be a serious disciple of Jesus, it means you're pursuing righteousness. And anytime you pursue righteousness, you're going to convict sin. Right? Scripture says this of Noah, that he was such a righteous man that he polarized the sin in his day. Right? You, you don't necessarily, if everyone's sinful, you don't recognize sin, but when you introduce a righteous person into a sinful context, all of a sudden there's polarity, there's contrast between the two sides. So if you, seeking to be a righteous person, are committed to something like generosity, and you have friends who are selfish, how are they going to respond to you? Right? You polarize that sin. You make them feel some level of shame and guilt before the living God in the way they're handling their money, and as a result, they are probably going to exhibit some contempt for you at some point. 
or slander you or backstab you, right? Or simply pull away from you. And you can think about this for almost any notion of righteousness. Say you, you're really pursuing being selfless. Well, how are your proud and arrogant friends going to respond to you? Again, by pursuing righteousness, you convict sin. And when you convict sin, there's going to be a reaction towards you. And those reactions often hurt. I think of numerous people over the years, for whatever reason, as we try to articulate the gospel here and live it out, they didn't like that and moved on. But I can think of one person who said, you know, I just don't like how you talk about money and generosity and I think you want me to be poor. And, of course, I didn't want him to be poor or anyone necessarily to be poor, but that's how he felt as of what we were saying, right? Because we were saying, what does it mean to be faithful with our money in relation to Jesus? For him, who he thought everything was about having money and security through money, he didn't like that at all. And so the shame and guilt that erupted, he pulled away, you know, critiqued us, and then the question is, what, are, what am I and what are we going to do with that? You know, do I say, okay, I understand, and I seek to be a blessing to you and to do goodness? Or, um, you know, do I bite back? I say, well, you better value your money. The way you're raising your kids are going to be nothing but narcissistic egomaniacs, and they're not going to have any friends. So you better make sure they have as much money as possible. Right? And all of a sudden, I feel better because I've exacted, I've critiqued him, I've undermined him, and I've now taken a pound of flesh for him after he's pulled away and I'm hurt that he's left. Right? We, we face these decisions that aren't that dissimilar from some of the decisions that the early church that Peter is writing to is being faced with. And I think we're going to face them all the more. And there's another aspect in which we have to feel Peter's comments and wrestle with who we really are. And to understand this, um, you know, Peter's advocating a certain way for the church to be. And we might say, well, we're not persecuted in the same way, so it doesn't apply in the same way. But we should still be aspiring or being what Peter is describing. Right? And if we're not that, then we have to say, well, maybe we're more of the other since we don't exhibit the qualities he's describing. In other words, if Peter is saying, um, you're either generous or you're selfish, and we might say, well, I don't know if Peter's words really apply to us, but um, if we were to take his characteristics seriously of how he's describing the church and ask whether or not they apply to us, we'd have to say, okay, am I generous? Well, I'm not that generous necessarily. So that means what? It means that I'm selfish. Right? Peter isn't, isn't holding out a third road here. Either, as he quotes the psalm, Right? The eyes of God fall uh, with favor on the righteous, or they don't fall with favor on the wicked. And so you're, you're either seeking to participate in, in the kind of community that Peter describes, or you're not. Well, what's the description? Right? After the last couple of weeks, we've seen that Jesus is the example, and he's shown how it affects the household code. And now in verse 8, he summarizes it all for us, for the church. He says, finally, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Right? So is, are we aspiring to what Peter describes? Well, are those characteristics that describe you? Do you have unity of mind? Uh, the notion is that we would have a shared, a shared passion that drives us in a common action. Right? Do we share a passion that unites us? Do you have sympathy towards those around you, or do you tend to think that people are whiny and don't deserve your time? Do you exhibit brotherly love toward those on your right and on your left? 
Do you have a tender heart to heed the needs of those around you? Do you have a humble mind that you would consider others more important than yourself? These are the qualities that Peter says is true of the community that is telling the Jesus story. If we don't exhibit these qualities, then we would have to say that we're struggling to tell the Jesus story, which is certainly true of us. I think we have so far to go in all of these qualities, right? And aspiring to them and living them out in rich and deep ways. And we need to talk about it together to how to reach it. And there are a couple really unique aspects to what Peter is saying here in in chapter 3, verse 8. These five characteristics that he lays down in the community. And I'll point out just two. The first is that all five of these words were typically used to describe the household. In other words, they weren't language that would be applied to anything else in society but to the family. And what Peter is doing is taking words that were typically applied to a biological family and saying, now in the church, this is your new family. This is what you exhibit to one another as you are forged into the body of Christ. Secondly, if you notice uh, the last characteristic which is in English is translated a humble mind, is really rather shocking. The first four characteristics aren't that unexpected. Right? They're things that would be honored in Greco-Roman culture. They would be expected um, to apply to, a, to a, a household that was living and thriving in good unity. But when you get to a humble mind, if you're living in the ancient world, you would have stopped and said, what is he talking about? Because the word there, the notion, is not something that is uh, respectable. It's not something that was considered a virtue. It was a word that was applied only to the lowest classes of Greco-Roman society. Typically, the, the slaves, the servants. Who, and the idea of the word is essentially that you, don't, you live in a place where you don't have any power. You don't have any ability to control your agenda. You are, you're somewhat helpless. Now, this wouldn't be a word in Greco-Roman culture that anyone of elite competitive class would have wanted applied to them. So Peter takes it and makes it a sign of virtue of the new community in Christ. Saying, so, yes, that you admit that you're helpless, that you admit that you have to entrust yourself completely to someone else. Mocked, this would be an idea that would be mocked or looked down upon, or you might pity in Greco-Roman culture. And here Peter says, no, this is one of the, the beautiful badges of honor we wear as those who are unified to Christ. And someone who can say, yes, I, I am out of control, and this world is unpredictable, and I am suffering when I would expect maybe that as a result of the work of Christ, I wouldn't be suffering and everything would be put right, but it hasn't been. And in this place, I entrust myself to God. And in that Peter would advocate that there's abounding freedom, ridiculous freedom. How and why should we aspire to such things? I think it's fantastic here that Peter has chosen to quote Psalm 34. The psalm there is, uh, comes from uh, David when he has passed himself off as insane uh, to those who would want to kill him and has run in to live amongst the Philistines, exiled from Israel. So Peter has chosen a psalm in which it describes David having to entrust himself entirely to God the Father, having been promised to be king, but is on the run from the king, living amongst the Philistines, right, amongst his enemies that would put him to death at any moment if, they didn't, if, he, wasn't, um, living, if he wasn't telling a story that, that allowed him to live there uh, under, undercover, so to speak. Right? And then... 
What Peter is saying, yes, and in the same way as you have been called to live amongst enemies, right? entrust yourself to the Father at this time. Because just as God the Father was faithful to his promises to David and brought him to the throne, all right, and of course Jesus is the real David who lies both before and after our passage this morning, and Peter would say, and just as Jesus had to come and live amongst his enemies and ultimately be handed over to them, but God was faithful to him and vindicated him, raising him from the dead, so God will be faithful to you. Yes, you have been called to suffer for righteousness' sake in the time being, but that is not the end of the story. And ultimately, the story will be completely and perfectly vindicated. The resurrection will right all wrongs. And this is the freedom that Peter invites you to live in. It's a freedom that sometimes we're we might think in an abstract way, oh, that sounds kind of nice. Yes, entrusting myself to God the Father. But in the day-to-day mundane of it, is it not much more difficult? When life it gets turned upside down and it doesn't feel like God is good at all, why would we entrust ourselves to Him? Then we must exercise our own strength and make something happen because God clearly isn't. But let me challenge you to think about two ways in which really... Remember, we're particularly talking about ways in which you suffer, uh, whether it's um, someone critiquing you or pulling away from you or um, robbing you of something, that you suffer because you are pursuing righteousness and suffer for it. If you were to pursue your own justice, consider just for a moment how unsatisfying that road really is. Uh, years ago, I was flipping channels, and I, I landed on the beginning of a movie. I have no idea. It was an old movie, 60s or 70s, and uh, I only watched the beginning of it, uh, but the beginning of the movie was a woman found herself in a place that was dangerous, some alley or something, and she was uh, attacked brutally by a man, and she went home and told her, uh, her husband, and they per- were proceeding to the police station, and as they're driving to the police station, The woman sees a man on the road, and she says, it's him. Well, the man, uh, filled with anger and a desire for justice, begins to follow the man, and eventually they end up in a quiet place, and he gets out and takes the man's life. It's back in the car, and they proceed, uh, presumably, to the police station, right? And on their way, uh, the next man that she uh, she sees, she says, it's him. And the next man that she sees, she says, it's him. And suffering from some kind of trauma and not being in her right mind, she simply is ascribing what's happened to her to every man that she sees. But of course, the husband realizes at that point that he's exercised justice in his own eyes, but it wasn't justice at all. Who knows if that was the right person or not. And in seeking to exercise his own justice, what's happened? Now he bears an incredible burden that, that he didn't have before. Right? Exercising justice is something that is very tricky. It's very delicate, it's very difficult, and you often almost never know the whole story. There's great liberty and freedom in saying, God, I'm going to allow you to handle justice. And I will simply seek to suffer for righteousness' sake and to be faithful to what you have called me. The second reason, though, that you might be um, in our desire to pursue our own justice, to be wary about that, is that our story that we celebrate is one in which mercy triumphs over judgment. If God was making all things to to right simply by virtue of his justice, then you would be separated from God forever. 
right? That would be justice. But in God's story, mercy triumphs over justice. Now then, if you proceed from there, believing that you are blessed in that story and live a life in which it's all about justice and mercy doesn't play a very important role, then you live a story that is in tension, that is in dissonance with the story of the gospel. And that's a miserable place to be. It will drive you crazy, right? You cease to tell the story of Jesus and to experience his grace in the midst of that story. There's freedom, there's joy, there's grace in tracing the life of Jesus and entrusting oneself to God. There was a soldier in the U.S. Army named William, and I thought this was a good example. He, um, he was a uh, Christian and pursued God in his faith and read his Bible every night, uh, talked openly about Christ, would pray at night, and the soldiers in his barracks mocked him. They, they weren't believers, and they thought his faith strange and childish, and, but probably in reality, their sin was also being polarized by the presence of a righteous man. And so they would throw things at him and, and give him a hard time and pull away from him. And one night, a, a very muddy pair of boots came flying across the room and hit him in the head and soiled his bed. The next day, when the soldiers woke, that pair of boots had been perfectly shined and put back at the foot of the bed of the person who owned them. And it was acts like that that gave the soldiers in the barracks pause, and they began to listen to the story that William would tell, and ultimately several of them converted. It was because he didn't revile for being reviled. He didn't return evil. He didn't demand his rights and his privileges, but he sacrificed them and sought to do good even in the midst of suffering that told the story of Jesus so well. And this is what we're actually supposed to be doing. So one of the things you have to know is, okay, you know, we've got this idea of participating in this good, and Peter will press it home to the church here in the passage that we're considering, and he eventually gets to the place where he says, and this is what's expected, that ultimately by, part, by telling this kind of story, you will exhibit a hope, a hope that people will have to pause and say, what is the nature of this hope? And Peter says, you should be ready to give an answer for the nature of this hope. Now, sadly, we so often hear verse 5, uh, 1 Peter 3.15, and we think, oh, well, we need to have an adequate defense for the gospel. And we think of it in very intellectual and apologetic terms, right? Somebody's going to ask me a question, and I'm going to, have, I'm going to be able to handle any argument against the gospel. Peter hasn't been talking about knowledge at all. He hasn't been talking about making sure that you have some aspect of the catechism down. In fact, what he has advocated is the qualities that characterize the community. Sympathy, a tender heart, a humble mind. Right? These are the things that on display are supposed to be something that exhibit a hope that actually makes people kind of look up and say, well, that's different. It's different than the stories that are being told around me. And the question then, the answer to it isn't some profound theological treatise. The answer is simply, yeah, you know, I feel the freedom to act this way and to suffer wrong because I trust in God and I'm seeking to tell the story of Jesus by which I'm saved. You have nothing greater to offer anyone than Jesus himself. Not some sophisticated apologetic answer. And this is what Peter desires for the churches to have on display for those around him that would uh, that would. Uh, persecute them, that would challenge them for their faith. In the beginning, I told you about uh, Virginia Proden, right, the Romanian lawyer who went on to do just this, to practice that law and to continue to suffer 
for righteousness sake until eventually the communist government had had it with her and sent someone to kill her. It was one evening late in the law office, a large man came in and her assistant peeked his head in the door and said, there's a guy here, he says he wants to talk about a case, but he won't say anything else. So she said, show him in, and he came in, and uh, he sat down, and he said, listen, we've warned you a lot, we've threatened you a lot, and you just won't listen. And so uh, this is the end of the road. And he pulled out a gun and held it to her, uh, proceeding about to shoot her. I mean, for us, this is the stuff of movies, right? But for communist Romania, it wasn't not that out of character, right? And so uh, she's sitting there, and this is how she recounts uh, what what occurred. She talks about how all these thoughts go through her mind, like her assistant finding her body in the morning. But then she gets to this place, and she writes, I considered the man before me. Behind those hate-filled eyes was a creation of God. He had an immortal soul, and he needed to know about the love of God about the love of God is shown in Jesus Christ. At once emboldened, I met my killer's eyes. Have you ever asked yourself, why do I exist? Or why am I here? Or what is the meaning of life? Right? Pretty bold. Can you imagine having that presence in that moment? You know, there's a gun pointed. Have you ever asked yourself, why do I exist? He, uh, he slid his gun back into the holster. Or, I'm sorry, I jumped a little bit. Uh, I once asked myself those questions. My voice stayed calm and did not waver. He slid his gun back into the holster. I leaned forward. You are here because God put you here, and he has put you to a test. Will you abide in God or in the will of a man, your boss, President Cheshire who requires you to worship him? Right? And so the man, he puts his gun away. They begin to have a conversation. Right? In that midst of that conversation, he's as frustrated with the communist regime as she is. He begins to hear the story of Jesus. He ends up at church. He converts. He ultimately goes to seminary and becomes a figure of you know, growing Christian movement in Romania during this time. Amen. Right? Why? Because Virginia was telling the story of the gospel. She was exhibiting a willingness to suffer for righteousness' sake. She had entrusted herself to the Father. And the story and the hope that she exhibited was compelling enough to stop an assassin in his tracks and to wonder, what is different here? And what's really beautiful is the same thing had happened to Virginia. Remember, it was the client who was telling the story that converted Virginia, and Virginia telling the story is what converts the assassin, and so on and so forth as we participate in that story. Would anyone ask you why you hope the way you do? Or do you exhibit enough hope to be asked about? Now, if the answer is yes, great. I hope your answer is Jesus. If the answer is no, then what prevents us from hoping? Why do we fall short of the qualities of community that are described by Peter in 3, verse 8? Part of the answer, obviously, from Peter has to be that we don't, aren't willing to entrust ourselves to the Father. And we don't like suffering for righteousness' sake, so we choose other venues. What would it be like to grow into a community that together, laboring together, we tell stories like the client that converts Virginia and like Virginia who converts the assassin and like the assassin who goes on to build the kingdom? What would we look like? What would it be to build that together? I don't know entirely what all is involved in that, but it's something that we have to labor at, to grow at, to become a more beautiful and compelling witness 
of the story of Jesus. So ask yourself this morning, in what ways do you not exhibit those qualities? And do we fail? And in what ways do you not have hope? And you know what? Admit that you are helpless. Admit that you cannot manufacture your own hope. And cry out to him who is the one who grants it. Let's pray together. Father, we, we readily admit that we lack hope. We readily admit that for um, many of us, if not most or all of us, uh, there's not a hope that is so on display that others would be uh, compelled to ask of it. Would you forge us into a community exhibiting such sympathy and brotherly love and tenderness and uh, humility, such a willingness to be servants, that people would marvel and would ask about this hope? Would you help us to entrust ourselves to you in ways that tell the story of Jesus very beautifully to the world. Uh, this is something that is beyond our own uh, ability to forge. It's something that we can't make happen. So we pray, as Augustine would, that you would give what you command. We ask it humbly in Christ's name. Amen. As the ushers come.